0: Annie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Now, you are a volcanologist. Uh, What on earth does that mean? Do you talk to Mr. Spock?
1: No, not V-U-L, V-O-L. So uh, I'm in the volcanology lab at UBC. Uh, There's a bunch of really interesting people who do different things, but what brings us all together is we study volcanoes and specifically for our lab, we do a lot of forensic volcanology, so not necessarily looking at currently erupting volcanoes, but looking at the uh, evidence that volcanoes have
0: left behind from past eruptions. That's really cool. CSI volcanoes. CSI volcanoes. Yep. <laughs> now, um, in this podcast series, we tend to meet people at uh, many different stages in their careers. Uh, so where are you in your career?
1: So, I am a PhD student. I started at UBC in the fall of 2020 as a master's student, and I did a year of study. I did two field seasons, and my project just kept getting bigger and cooler and more involved. So, this past September, I upgraded to a PhD.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: How much longer do you have left?
1: Well, everyone says that it should take four years, uh, but I think if you look at the average, people usually take five to six. So I'm hoping I can subtract the year of work I've already completed and shoot for four.
0: Now you say you're doing your uh, master's, or you were doing your master's, now you're doing your PhD. Um, what did you do for your undergrad? Where did you go to school? So I went to Quest University,
1: which a lot of people haven't heard of. It's a small liberal arts university in Squamish, British Columbia. Um, I believe it opened in 2007. So uh, when I started there in my first year, there were like 200 other students in my class. Um, but it uh, it's a really interesting school. Uh, it's a program... Where the first two years, you sort of cover a really broad range of topics, as you would expect from a liberal arts school. But then what makes Quest special is that in your second two years, you complete the uh, concentration program, where you craft your own sort of research question or guiding question. And you work with an advisor to put together your own course of study to help answer that question.
0: That's really interesting. That's um, a very unique model. Uh, What did you end up researching?
1: My question was, how can mythology and science inform one another? So I was looking at, I have always loved earth sciences. I was lucky enough to take a geology course in high school, which isn't really offered many places, I think. But um, I went into my first year of university thinking, wow, I'd love to study rocks. But there were so many other things I was also interested in that... um, Quest was a really good fit and I found that through my question I was able to look at earth sciences and you know the landscape and natural processes from a broader perspective as as to how people go about understanding their natural environment and I've always been fascinated with storytelling and myths and i I'm also fascinated about the storytelling aspects of science. So it was an I- interesting course of study for sure.
0: That's a really valuable uh, background. I, I'm thrilled that you have that. What got you into volcanology in particular as that aspect of earth science?
1: Thinking about how um, geology can have an impact on people, there are a couple of like specific topics in geology that have way bigger of an impact or the possibility of an impact. Uh, for example, um, no shade to like metamorphic petrology, but the human impact is a little more abstract. You have to sort of make a couple of jumps to, to get that connection. Whereas if we look at, uh, natural hazards or, um, Volcanic eruptions or meteoric impacts, they have a much larger, pardon the pun, but impact on, like, the human experience and even the human psyche. So I found volcanoes really interesting because, especially with the sort of more forensic work that my lab is doing, you can use, like, hard science skills and the scientific method to sort of uncover something that might've actually had an impact on somebody's life in the past. And I just find that incredibly compelling.
0: (laughs) I love that. This is going to be a great interview, um, especially when you're already trash talking the metamorphic petrologists and
1: (laughs) no pressure. And sorry, sorry to Greg Dipple and everyone (laughs) over there. You can tell that that's not my forte maybe.
0: (laughs) No worries. No worries. (laughs) Now, um, I find that most uh, career paths can be very circuitous. Uh people often face setbacks or change uh direction in mid-career. Now you you're at the beginning of your career right now. Uh but you already did have that um f- fairly large shift to to volcanism. Um have you exper- experienced any uh turnarounds or challenges? Um so
1: having gone to or having done an undergrad degree that wasn't specifically in geology or the, you know, Earth-Ocean Atmospheric Sciences. Uh, Having graduated from Quest and during my time in my undergrad, I did work for a couple of different junior mining companies. I worked for the Yukon Geological Survey. I was lucky enough to have a bunch of these different experiences, but I also had this like low-level anxiety that I wasn't up to the um, like the knowledge base or the knowledge standard that other students who maybe went to UBC or went to a different school in a geology department would have. So for a lot of my early working career, I found myself always feeling as though I was behind a little bit and um, you know, downloading textbooks onto my phone to bring into the field just in case. I couldn't identify a mineral or something like that. Um, But what I did find is that I learned a lot on the job and I probably did not have to worry that much. And I'm sure everyone who's ever started a career, whether it be, you know, academia or in like the exploration business, has felt that way before. Um, But I did try out working for like i said a couple of different junior mining companies i did some field work in northern bc and in argentina mapping like porphyry deposits and it was really cool but i found that i kept wanting to take courses and to get back into the university environment so i gave it a shot and as i suspected i have come back to school and will probably be at school for the rest of my life, in one way or another.
0: I think people would be shocked how many of these uh, highly accomplished and um, severely intelligent people have that exact same feeling that they're not as smart uh, as the people around them. Um, The university is just full of people uh, living with imposter syndrome, so I think you're in good company.
1: Yeah, it's not a unique experience, I'm sure.
0: Now, you mentioned you've already had uh, quite a lot of experience. Uh, Have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share?
1: I mean, I discovered a lot of really old files that I had to digitize uh, in some of my old jobs, Uh, if we're going to be literal about it. um, Some of my more exciting uh, discoveries or research has been through this project that I'm currently working on um, at UBC, and it's uh it's interesting because i've been so i i my field area is just to the south of whistler british columbia i'm looking at a set of quaternary lavas if you've ever driven up to whistler to go skiing or something like that the highway cuts through them so you've seen my lavas uh they're called the checkimus basalts and um they haven't. They're a little bit understudied. Like the last person to look at them mapped them in the 80s, and before that, there was only one other person that's really published on them. And both of them were sort of looking at these basalts in a broader uh, context for the volcanic belt as a whole. So I'm taking another look at them. I'm trying to better understand uh, how quickly they were emplaced. Uh, whether or not they're from one source or multiple sources. And uh, more recently, as my project has gotten bigger, how these basalts, as they were erupted and traveled almost 30 kilometers down a very high relief mountainous terrain, how that had an impact on, say, things like drainage valleys and possible um, damming and flooding and things like that. So I've... Had a lot of exciting new discoveries looking at that area, but I haven't published on them yet. And my advisor continues to advise me to keep my powder dry, as it were. So that's been a little bit funny for me. So uh, stay tuned, I guess.
0: Wonderful. And uh, can you tell me what age these la- lavas are or how old they are?
1: yeah, so uh that was one of the big questions of my research because they're pretty poorly constrained in terms of age, but uh, we've done some recent argon argon dating on the uh, the like lowest exposed uh, flows of this package, and they look to be around twenty four, thousand years old, plus or minus fifteen thousand. so, that puts us before the last glaciation, which one would guess because you can walk on top of these basalts and you can see that they're striated and they have like chisel marks and uh, glacial erratics on top of them. So that date does check out.
0: Cool. Um, Argon dating, what time frame is that good for? Cause I know carbon dating is only for like recent things made by people.
1: Yeah, funny you should ask because the other sort of historic date we have on these basalts is a carbon-14 date, and it was taken from a piece of um, like carbonized wood in between two lava flows, sort of in a uh, a layer of glacial fluvial sediment, and that one came back at around 32,000 years. So it seems like... We, we have this sort of interlap or overlap of uh, these basalts are at the old limit of carbon dating, but they're at the absolute youngest limit of argon-argon dating, which provide it's a kind of a challenge to get a good argon-argon age on these because number one, they don't have a lot of the material that you collect argon from so the potassium to argon uh, reaction or decay is the mechanism that we're using in order to to date these but these rocks don't have a lot of minerals that contain potassium to start with and then because they are so young there's also not a lot of time for that argon to to collect so we've got sort of a double whammy of problems when
0: it comes to dating these rocks wow that sounds like a, a unique challenge
1: yeah. Um, sadly, not as, as unique as we would want in terms of looking at young volcanics in this area. We sort of run into this problem with almost everything that we're, we're looking at if it's below a certain age.
0: And are you able to say uh, which mountain is the culprit or mountains?
1: <laughs> this was the other big question is where is the source for these basalts? Because um, it's quite a voluminous amount. Um but my initial thought was we look at older maps um, of these basalts, and they are the their extent terminates at Callahan Lake, which if anybody's ever been up to the Callahan Valley, there's a beautiful cross-country skiing area up there. Uh, Callahan Lake is a great place to go in the summer, uh, but it turns out that it is not a volcanic vent. So if you're looking for one, you can cross Callahan Lake off your list. Um, We did some bathymetric mapping. I have a colleague and actually old professor, Dr. Steve Kwan, who has a uh, sonar set up on a paddleboard. And he does a lot of bathymetry work for lava dammed lakes in the Garibaldi volcanic belt. So I said, hey, Steve, can you come help me take a look at Callahan Lake? So he he set up his paddle board, we um, spent a day paddling back and forth across it, collecting data, and when we, when we looked at it, we found that the uh, profile of this lake is a classic alpine U-shaped valley with sort of this very abrupt, steep drop-off of, uh, of a lava flow. So it doesn't have the characteristics of a vent and what really put the nail in the coffin is you travel farther up the valley and lava continues to, you know, be present. So I guess if we talk about discoveries, one of the major things of the past year of my work is we've extended the uh, aerial extent of these basalts by about 20 square kilometers.
0: What a fun way to do research. <laughs> Paddleboarding. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It almost doesn't feel like you're working. It feels like you've duped somebody into letting you just hang out on a beautiful lake and get paid for it.
0: Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Now that leads me to my next question uh, and you've kind of already started to answer it. Um, One of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing about people's field stories. Um, It seems like the field is this magical place where, uh, the best and the worst things can happen. Uh, so, do you have any field stories that you'd care to share?
1: I've been lucky in that nothing catastrophic or terrible has happened to me in the field. Um, but one story that I, every time I go out to do field work, I can't get it out of my head is is one that was told to me by the project geologist I was working with as a student up in the Yukon. Um, And we were, as as you are, we were fly camping, Um, no cell service, I'd already read all my books, we'd already played a million games of Crib, so you just end up telling stories. And uh, he was telling me a story of some of the people who had worked at the Yukon Geological Survey a couple of years previously, and they had been doing fieldwork in uh, Nunavut, polar bear country, And he had described how this team of people was dropped off by the helicopter to go do their mapping, and they, you know, were walking around, having a good day, finding some outcrop that wasn't totally covered in lichen, and in the distance, they see a polar bear. And they go, okay, well, let's just keep an eye on that, because that's a bit freaky, because polar bears will just straight up eat you. And... Uh, an hour passes, they see it's gotten a lot closer, and they go, okay, uh, it's time to get back to the helicopter. And they decide to drop their lunches, like the packs that had their lunches in it, to see if, you know, that would keep the polar bear interested while they could get away. And they're, like, half a kilometer away from where they've dropped their packs, and they realize that they left the radio back with their lunches and they cannot call the helicopter to come pick them up. Luckily, they realize they still have their satellite phone. So as they're, you know, booking it back to where the helicopter is going to pick them up, they dial the number of the helicopter company to see if they can get in contact that way. And they dial it, and it turns out that the helicopter company is based in Houston, Texas. So they get somebody on the phone who has no idea where they are. And they go, hey, we need help. We're being chased by a polar bear. Can you get in contact with this helicopter pilot? And the lady on the phone goes, I'm sorry, but we're a serious business. And you can't prank phone call us like that. And she hangs up. Anyway, they finally got through. The helicopter pilot had been circling because he'd seen the polar bear and they managed to get on board and get away safely. But I cannot imagine how freaky it would be to be in that moment and be mistaken for like a 12-year-old making a really bad prank phone call. So I think, luckily I've never worked in a place with polar bears, but I think about that a lot and I always make sure I have my radio like, attached to my body.
0: I think that's uh, very sound field advice.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, 100%.
0: Now, going back to your your research, um, why would you say it's important that we understand uh, where this lava came from?
1: So one of the reasons why we should care is that looking at past or historical eruptions allows us to create a record of volcanic activity that informs hazards for the future. So looking at past volcanic eruptions, you can figure out how frequently they erupted or how explosive they were when they erupted in the past. And as I said, that without that record, it's really difficult to um, sort of predict or understand volcanic risks or hazards. Uh, So that's one reason, is building this record. Uh, Another reason also has to do with records. Now, a lot of the work that my lab does is looking at not only volcanic eruptions, but glacial volcanism, which is when uh, lava interacts with either glacial ice, glacial meltwater, or something else of the sort. And this is really interesting and useful because as we know, in North America at least, we've had multiple uh, cycles of glaciation. But the thing that happens with uh, glaciation is there's sort of a big eraser that wipes the landscape relatively clean. So a lot of the glacial evidence that we have left over from the Fraser glaciation is pretty much all we have. We don't have sedimentological records that go back past that glacial period because they've been erased. Luckily, glaciovolcanic evidence is a little bit hardier and sticks around for a lot longer. So what we can tell from things like tuyas, which are sub subglacial volcanoes, are how old were they? What height was glacial ice at, at this time? time period? And what does that tell us about the extent of glaciers in the past? So they sort of act as these um, high water marks or artifacts from, from past glacial events that we can sort of look back to and, and help create a record that otherwise wouldn't exist.
0: That makes total sense. Um, and I love your explanation of how glaciers are the erasers of the landscape and um, yeah, wipe the slate clean um, for everything that came before them. Um, it's amazing, but it's also annoying, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, glaciologists, I think, find it quite annoying. The volcanologists swoop in and go, "Hey, I can, I can help you with that."
0: I was chatting with one of our uh, glaciologists just yesterday, and she was showing me an example of an ice core with a thick black line in it, and um, she said that was evidence of a volcanic eruption uh, nearby. So uh, it goes both ways.
1: I suppose, yeah, I suppose it does. Um, definitely uh, tephra beds or, you know, small beds of ash are great ways to date um, sediments that otherwise might not have dateable material in them. So, yeah, a little a little horizon of, of tephra can be really useful to to almost anyone.
0: Now, you're clearly really passionate about your work. Um, what's the best part of your work? What do you love the most?
1: The best part of my work, I really love doing field work. I love going out and kicking rocks, essentially, and trying to figure out the puzzle that they represent. Um, I find, personally, that it's a really satisfying way of being in the world and trying to understand the landscape. Um, I'm really well known in my family and friend group to be the last person on the hike because I've stopped somewhere and I'm just sort of crawling along a rock face trying to look at, take a better look at something. So I find field work is probably one of the best, best parts of my job. Um, I also really love being in the field with students I was uh, a little sad because usually in the class I'm teeing right now, the volcanology class, there's at least two or three different field trips that we take undergrads out onto, but this year we couldn't run them because of COVID. So it was a little sad to, to miss out on, on that experience and, and all that, but definitely understandable.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that geologists as a whole, and specifically volcanologists too, uh, tend to be fairly chill people, um, just content to, like you said, be in the world. (laughs) So um, that's the best part. What's the worst part of your work, or the most challenging?
1: The most challenging, Um, specifically right now, uh, as we talked about earlier, is is trying to get good, useful argon-argon dates. (laughs) But um, to be maybe a little bit less specific, I have been, I guess, training myself to be a little bit more uh, independent and self-driven when it comes to scheduling and doing work. And I think that's something I will continue to get a lot better with. But I found that with the past two years of working at home and sort of not having uh, clarity on what's coming next uh, my mind has been sort of in a holding pattern and I've been really excited to get back on campus and get back into uh, like a dynamic and exciting environment to sort of jump start that that part of my brain into being more proactive and being more organized
0: oh well that's certainly not your reputation um you're Quite well-respected in the department as a, as a go-getter, and yeah.
1: Well, there you go. I guess that harkens back to our talk about uh, imposter syndrome and things like that.
0: <laughs> exactly. Now, I'm curious, um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's uh, impacted your studies or your career in any way?
1: Um, I think that being a woman in STEM can be difficult, but I found personally, I haven't run up against many challenges or roadblocks because of that. I think I've been really lucky to have a lot of great uh, female bosses or role models that have made things a lot easier than maybe they could have been. I know that I'm in a really uh, like a big place of privilege And I think that's made my experience either with work or with applications to different universities or within the department itself quite a lot easier than maybe some other people have it. But, um, yeah, I'd say I've just to circle back, I've had some really great bosses who have given me a lot of really good advice. And uh, I think I sometimes underestimate how useful that's been and helpful that's been.
0: Yeah, it's very easy for everyone to uh, take for granted how uh, how easy we have it in many ways, but um, I'm glad that you have had a good experience so far. As a whole, do you feel like volcanology is uh, really open and welcoming, or is it smaller and more insular and uh, looks after their own?
1: I, I have entered the field at a really strange time. I started work in 2020. I met a lot of people over Zoom and then it was a year and a half until I actually saw them in person. So I think I'm a weird case when it comes to getting getting the lay of the land in terms of what being a newcomer to a field is like. I found that uh, my lab and especially the the volcanology lab at SFU, Simon Fraser University, there's a really good community of researchers. Uh, we have lab meetings. We have small conferences where we share share each other's work. We sometimes are field assistants to one another across the schools. So I found that to be really, really welcoming for sure. Um, I think that on a broader scale, one thing that I've been thinking about with my work uh, for the public and internal relations committee is how are as a whole, how is the department or geology in general marketing itself to people? And how might that have internal bias as to who ends up going into geology? Are we always going to get the like outdoorsy person from, Oregon or wherever who ends up being a part of the department or going into the field versus there might be so many other people out there who just don't consider geology as a career because the image that we put out of
0: ourselves is so specific. That's great. Now, just going back for a moment, I think you're the perfect person to have a lay of the land. Cause I mean, that's your literally your research. Um, <laughs> And uh, also, I I don't think we've ever actually been in the same room, uh, you and I. We may have, but um, when we are, I I just see your eyes, so I don't know who you are. Um, (laughs) Despite,
1: like, two years of practice, I have not gotten any better at identifying people just by their eyebrows.
0: Oh, yes. And and I've given up wearing glasses with my mask because they just fog up. And, um, yeah, the last two years, everyone's been very hazy. (laughs)
1: kind of blurry in the... If they're not five feet away from me, I don't know. Cause I'm the same. I usually wear glasses, but you're right. I'm lucky enough to just say, okay, I'll be a tiny bit blind.
0: Now you've touched on this bit, um, but I'm curious explicitly, how has the pandemic affected your work?
1: Yeah, so there was the, the whole bit about not meeting anybody or really being on campus um, for quite a while. And as I said, I think that had a little bit of an impact on say my daily schedule or my you know, list of things to do and just general general vibes around being an academic. It was very much me sitting on my couch at home trying to get my head in the game. But uh, when it comes to field work, as I said, I've been able to have two pretty complete seasons already. And there were a lot of plans that we had to make in order to be, you know, COVID safe and things like that. But I've been lucky enough to be able to get out with different experts in the field. Um, We have a co-researcher, Dr. Rene Berenjit from the University of Lethbridge, who's been able to come out and help us do work on uh, paleomagnetic sampling. So because we'd be outside all day um, and take separate cars, and because we were so close, Vancouver to Whistler for field work is actually quite quite cushy. Um, We were less affected than I think other people were who might have only had you know, one or two weeks to get everything they needed to do done in the summer because it was just so difficult to get to their field areas.
0: That's wonderful. I've spoken to so many uh, researchers who said uh, the pandemic was great for them because it gave them a chance to finally uh, process data that they had sitting around for years and years. But for someone like you who's just starting, uh, you wouldn't have that backlog. And so uh, I would be worried that you wouldn't be able to, to get anything done. But I'm glad you are able to get it into the field.
1: Yeah, able to start accruing data to have a future backlog at some point.
0: (laughs) And it'll come, it'll come.
1: Yeah, inevitable, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Now, you've painted a really fun picture of volcanology. Uh, I'm curious, what uh, background or courses or or even just experience uh, would you recommend for young people who are uh, planning to follow in your footsteps?
1: Uh, I would start by saying um, if you already have a degree in something else or you haven't done geology as an undergrad, don't let that stop you. I, I think I had about six or seven earth science courses in total um, when I started working um, and sort of added to it from there and, and came back and did a little bit more, but I... I found it interesting and I decided, despite having a a slightly different background, that I was going to go for it. Um, That being said, some of the things that I really loved were having some good field trips and good uh, field courses and field classes. Because I think one of the most important skills you can have as, as any type of researcher is to get really good at observing things and asking questions about them. So being out in the field, even if you're on a hike or something and you you look at, say, the shape of a valley and think, why? Why is it that way? Um, I think that's the first step on the path to to having a career in in geology and also the first step towards a path of just having a really interesting relationship with the earth around you.
0: I love that advice. (laughs) Go take a hike.
1: (laughs) Go go take a hike, (laughs) yeah.
0: Now you mentioned that you had done some uh, consultation work before you went into your master's program. Um, What kind of work was that?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't consultation work but I was working as a field geologist and as a compilation geologist for some junior mining companies. So I did a lot of soil sampling um, I did a lot of mapping of alteration zones around porphyry deposits, and then I also have some background in geographic information work, um, which, you know, looks at remotely sensed data um, and how that can help inform your either your exploration or your research or whatever. So I, I did a lot of uh, digitizing old maps from the 70s and data entry and things like that. Uh, sort of a, a mixture of things. Um, and, and on that note, I would say, as we were talking about, take a hike. Or as a GIS person, I just have to say, fly around on Google Earth. Because there are some crazy, crazy things that you can observe from a satellite view. Uh, Some of the best labs that I've taken, either in like structural geology or other things like that, really make use of 3D models, digital elevation models, satellite imagery. Lots of cool things to see there, too.
0: I think you're the first person to give that advice, but it makes total sense. It's very... um, uh, yeah, very future-looking <laughs> advice.
1: It's Well, I just think about maybe it's been around, what, 15 years or so, but we've already gotten so used to the fact that you could just zoom anywhere in the Earth and see it from above. Like, there's a crazy um, initiative to get LiDAR data, which is uh, helps create really accurate 3D models of a surface, for the entire globe kind of as a preservation project but also as this like giant data set for use and in, in pretty much anything you can think of and just the sheer amount of data like that that exists blows my mind it's so useful
0: yeah that's beyond my uh my, my ab- ability to grasp i'm a bit of an idiot at times no <laughs> now you've been uh really inspiring today, but I'm curious who inspired you while you were studying or what gave you the, uh, the metal to keep going?
1: I find the subject matter endlessly interesting, so that really helps. Um, in terms of people, I think I mentioned him, the, the sonar paddle boarding expert, uh, he was my advisor for my undergrad, Dr. Steve Kwan. Uh, Really interesting guy, uh, was a professor at Quest University for a long time and is now the um, head geologist for the Sea to Sky Fire and Ice Aspiring Geopark, um, which is a, yeah, it's a project that's getting started and that I've done a little bit of work for, um, starting in the Whistler municipality, just trying to build, I almost look at it as a, an outdoor museum where the exhibits are geological features or processes or things that you can go and, and take a look at and see. So his work with, with that project has been really cool to to see and be a part of. Um, another one of, of my influences or people who have really made an impact on me um, I have a family friend who is the CEO of a almost like a mom and pop junior mining company that I was uh, able to intern for when I was a student, and she gave me some really good advice. This is Judith Harder um, that I found really useful because I'd previously only worked with like middle-aged men who... I learned a lot from, but had a different life experience from, and she sort of took me aside one day and she said, fieldwork is really fun, but maybe one day you might want to have a family or do something different with your life. And I want to help you build skills that you can go sideways if you need to, or if you want to. So consider learning a bit more about GIS or consider maybe going into the business or the financial side of doing exploration geology, just consider all your different options. And I had never had somebody take the time to sort of think about my future in that context before. And that was a really uh, defining moment in my early
0: career, I guess. That's great advice. And... It's like you said, it's um, something that a lot of people don't get that one-on-one mentoring um, and someone saying like, I know where you're going, but this is what, these are the challenges that you're not thinking of right now.
1: Yeah. Or even, even to have somebody who, cause, cause what I noticed in my limited time, um, working in the mining industry is that there are a lot of, um, active strapping young men and old men and lots of them. And they're great, but I never once met one who was a stay at home dad, for example. So there was just this assumption that if you were a woman or like a non-binary person coming into that space, you had to sort of fit into this idea, oh, you're gonna be a field geologist? Well, you're gonna be away from like March to October every year for your entire life and you'll just have to figure out how to make that work. Whereas that doesn't really work for everybody, but that shouldn't be a barrier to being able to have a field-based career, I think.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's those invisible um, challenges that uh, geology is starting to come to terms with, I, I think.
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of work to do, but it's it's nice to be in a department with um like an EDI committee and doing uh, like the urge, uh, unlearning racism in the geosciences, having all of these different um, projects to work on has been it's been a good part of being in this department, I
0: found. Now, you're still at the beginning of your career, um, or relatively speaking. Um, I want you to look to the end of your career. What would you like to be your legacy when you retire? Or uh, what do you want to have written on your career's tombstone?
1: Huh. Um, I think I want to have research things that I find compelling and interesting I want to have been able to share that with collaborators and with students. Um, I want to have fun and be happy and look at cool things and be kind to people, I think, is what I would say.
0: I love that. <laughs> I think uh, that embodies the warm and welcoming feeling. Uh, and casual attitude of of so many of our geologists. Um, Come, have a good time. (laughs) Yeah, look at some rocks. Now, uh, finally, uh, looking to, again, the long term, I find that uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely revolutionized by the time they retire. Um, A person might not even recognize their job when they retire uh, compared to the job that they were doing when they started. where do you see volcanology or, or geology uh, um, on a broader scale going, and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes?
1: I think that, and we've we've touched on this, the field of volcanology will start to rely or or have a big how do I say this? I think that the field of volcanology will start using big data sets a lot more. I think that there's a ton of things that we can do in terms of research using these big data sets, whether that's uh, LIDAR or, uh, you know, remote sensing of volcanic gases. There's a bunch of stuff that that's, that's already ubiquitous for other researchers. um, It's a, an interesting place for me coming from a lab where we are focused sort of on field work and on past events and doing a really detailed analysis to try and reconstruct what's happened. And I think that there is a place in that sort of side stream of volcanology for these bigger data sets. Um, I think. The advice that I'd give to young people starting out is to become literate in uh, geographic information systems and being able to, to use that data to your advantage.
0: Well, Annie, those are all my questions. Did I forget anything or is there anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. And I think just... Having this podcast for the department and for you know department adjacent people in general is is quite a cool thing.
0: So thank you for for all the work that you're doing. Oh no, you did all the work today. <laughs> I just asked the questions. <laughs> um, thank thank you really for sharing your passion and your enthusiasm and your stories, uh, and your advice. Um, I think I hope that people who are listening to this are inspired to uh, become the next volcanologists
1: woo come join us.
0: The water's warm. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.